He is faithful. Cannot be otherwise. Even when we are faithless, he is faithful because he can't be otherwise. Open your Bibles to Acts chapter 22, beginning in verse 30. We'll read through chapter 23, verse 22. Acts 22, 30 through 23, 22. Um, if you don't have a Bible, there's one provided for you in the back of the pew there right in front of you. You'll find this I think on page 791 or 831 of the Pew Bible. And as you're turning there, uh, let me just preface this quickly in a couple of ways. Um, first of all, especially for those who maybe are visiting or have just come recently, we've been studying the book of Acts actually since the beginning of the year, uh, starting in January and just making our way sequentially, mostly chapter by chapter, but sequentially through the book. And we can uh, see the end of that in sight. Now, you don't have to applaud uh, for that or anything. Uh, we're approaching uh, the end. It only has 28 chapters, and we're already on 23 today. But anyway, making our way sequentially, just sort of drawing out of the text the message in the text, and uh, and then applying that to our situation. Um, so that's that's one thing for you to know if you're um, uh, coming here again just today or fairly recently. The other is uh, people who have been here around a, a while know that I um, very deliberately avoid. Uh, partisan political uh, kinds of things um, and really will continue to do so uh, today. I try, I try not to be, um, you know, sort of partisan and, and politicized and so forth. The reason I say both of those things is because if you have a bulletin, you see that the title of today's message is Christ Reigns Over Sleazy Politics. And uh, particularly in light of the political events of the last couple of weeks, that may seem like um, a, a message where I've just capitalized on the opportunity to speak into this political moment. Um, now, as I planned the message, of course, I uh, could see the relevance um, of this message to our political moment, but, uh, but it's actually by the providence of God, here we are in Acts chapter 23. So uh, again, the title of Christ reigns over sleazy politics. It's from Acts chapter 22, beginning of verse 30. Let's look there together now, and I'm going to ask you if you're able to stand in honor of the reading of God's word. Beginning of verse 30, I'm reading out of the English Standard Version, hear the word of the Lord. But on the next day, desiring to know the real reason why he was being accused by the Jews, he unbound him and commanded the chief priests and all the council to meet. And he brought Paul down and set him before them. And looking intently at the council, Paul said, Brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. And the high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. Then Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Are you sitting to judge me according to the law, and yet contrary to the law, you order me to be struck? Those who stood by said, would you revile God's high priest? And Paul said, I did not know, brothers, that he was the high priest, for it is written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. Now, when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out in the council, brothers, I'm a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. It is with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I'm on trial. And when he had said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. Then a great clamor arose, and some of the scribes and Pharisees' party stood up and contended sharply. We find nothing wrong in this man. What if a spirit or an angel spoke to him? And when the dissension became violent... 
The tribune, afraid that Paul would be, be torn to pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go down and take him away from among them by force and bring him into the barracks. The following night, the Lord stood by him and said, Take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. Verse 12. When it was day, the Jews made a plot and bound themselves by an oath neither to eat nor drink till they had killed Paul. There were more than 40 who made this conspiracy. They went to the chief priests and elders and said, We have strictly bound ourselves by an oath to taste no food till we have killed Paul. Now, therefore, you, along with the council, give notice to the tribune to bring him down to you as though you were going to determine his case more exactly. And when we are ready to kill him, and we are ready to kill him before he comes near. Now, the son of Paul's sister heard of their ambush, so he went and entered the barracks and told Paul. Paul called one of the centurions and said, take this young man to the tribune, for he, was, he has something to tell him. So he took him and brought him to the tribune and said, Paul, the prisoner, called me and asked me to bring this young man to you, as he has something to say to you. The tribune took him by the hand and going aside, asked him privately, what is it that you have to tell me? And he said, the Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul down to the council tomorrow as though they were going to inquire somewhat more closely about him. But do not be persuaded by them for more than 40 of their men are lying in ambush for him who have bound themselves by an oath neither to eat nor drink till they have killed him. And now they are ready, waiting for your consent. So the tribune dismissed the young man, charging him, tell no one that you have informed me of these things. Let's pray together. Well, Father, as always, we are privileged to open your word, knowing that in it, you have revealed truth to us and that through it, you speak to your people, Lord, that you use the mouths of people like me to see to it that your word is heard through the proclamation the preaching of the scriptures. And so we ask you would do that today, knowing all the needs in all the hearts within the sound of my voice. So Lord, we ask that you would speak your word by your spirit, through your servant to your people, for your glory in Jesus' name, amen. And you may be seated. You'll recall that Paul has been on three missionary journeys. Chapters 13 through 28 of Acts really focus on Paul and his ministry. And he, and he, he goes on three missionary journeys um, over a period of years. And he returns to Jerusalem. And he ran into trouble pretty much as soon as he arrived in Jerusalem. As he expected, Jesus had told him to expect such. And so had the prophets of the church told him that that's what awaited him. And the rest of the book from chapters 21 through 28 uh, really tell us about Paul's journey to Rome as a prisoner. He goes through a series of hearings. Last week we saw where he was giving a defense before the crowd outside the temple. Today, a hearing uh, in front of the Sanhedrin, the Jewish ruling body. Um, if we were to go on and read in chapter uh, 23 where we just stopped, we would read how the tribune in response to this word from Paul's nephew, sends him on to Caesarea to, to, to a hearing before Felix, the governor. He'll also be heard by another uh, governor and then the Jewish king before finally going to Rome after making an appeal to Caesar. 
So there's this series of hearings and he faces these accusations and is forced to defend himself in what proves, especially here in this passage, to be a sleazy political environment. And yet he experiences once again that Christ reigns even over sleazy politics. And so I want to make three quick observations um, about that from this passage here today, one being that political sleaze, to use that term, political sleaze tends to grow in a certain cultural environment. Um, number two, that God has a plan that will prevail even in a politically sleazy environment. And then number three, he enlists people to participate in the carrying out of his plan. So that's what we're going to look at here today. And first being that political sleaze just grows uh, or at least flourishes in a certain cultural environment as it did here. You know, we, in, in light of this um, hurricane that we're recovering from, um, and I think there was even, you know, Paul was referencing this today, uh, mold abounds, right, in, in Wilmington and, and surrounding counties right now because of, um, you know, water that's come through the roof, water that came up through the doors and windows and all, all other places. Um, moisture and heat and whatever other factors just tend to uh, cause mold to grow, right? And so as, as, as long as there's moisture there, you know, you're prone to have it. Even if you don't see it, you know it's probably there, right? There's a certain environment that just causes it to flourish. Well, again, sort of by analogy, there are certain cultural environmental conditions that cause political sleaze to grow and to flourish. And, and one of those is that uh, when the masses, the populace develops a mob mentality, we would have to flash back to see this. It was from last week's message that Dan Sonnenberg preached. But when, when Paul was preaching before the crowd um, outside the temple, you may recall he begins to, to speak in their language and they listen to him. He's speaking respectfully, reasonably, and this sort of thing. And they are listening to them, to him. And it says in verse 21, they listen to him um, up until the point where he says, God told me, go, for I will send you away to the Gentiles. And in verse 22 of chapter 22, it says, up to this word, they listened to him. Then they raised their voices and said, away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. You have this one statement that God has sent him to the Gentiles and they just flip their wig, you know, get their britches all in a twist about it and to go from listening to him to wanting to put him to death. We saw something similar, if you recall, in Ephesus. Do you remember the crowd when they ran into the theater there? Um, I mean, just all worked up. Some of them didn't even know what they were worked up about. They're just part of the mob shouting and everything. And when somebody stands and tries to make a defense, they shouted him down for two hours. Just shouting, great is Artemis of the Ephesians because they can't bear to hear an opposing viewpoint. You know, there's certain things that are just so offensive they can't even stand to listen to it and, and, and just immediately hear, want to put Paul to death. That is a mob mentality and it's characterized by irrationality and emotional weakness, just the, the, the inability to actually entertain and sustain rational thought for long enough to consider the truth or falsehood of, um, of, a, of somebody, someone else's claim. That's exactly what's happening here 
to Paul. And of course, the, the, the trial that he's, or the hearing that's taking place right now, the trial really is, is a response to that. The significance of that though, in terms of its breeding, cultivating political sleaze is number one, that rulers reflect the people that they rule to a certain degree. That mindset of the people is going to make it in uh, to places of authority and governance. But even when that's not true, rulers manipulate that sort of instability um, and they weaponize it and point it in whatever direction they want to use it for their own ends. And, the, and we saw this again throughout the book of Acts. You see Jewish leaders stirring up the crowds. Do you remember that language? And the crowds would run them out of town. The crowds even stoned Paul in one case. It came from Jewish leaders knowing there was a mob there, just pushing the right buttons, clicking the right controllers, and all of a sudden they point the fury, the frenzy, the irrationality of the mob in the direction they want to use it for their own purposes. It breeds this sort of political sleaze, and you can bet that when the masses cannot sustain rational thought, they'll be ruled by a powerful few people who can that's maybe a message for another day, but that's one of the things we see about the cultural environment. Um, the second is that there's a tribalism um, that emerges among their rulers. If you look in verses six and following, it said Paul, when he perceived that one part was Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out in the council, hey brothers, I am a Pharisee, son of a Pharisee. It's with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I'm on trial. And it says that when they heard this, they got in a fuss about Pharisees versus Sadducees. I mean, they very quickly lost sight of what it was that supposedly concerned them in the first place. I mean, the, the thing that had been so offensive about Paul, even before he arrived in Jerusalem, was what people had heard that he was preaching to the Gentiles, telling them they don't have to um, obey all the Jewish laws. They don't have to be circumcised and that sort of thing. He was falsely accused, if you remember, of bringing Gentiles into the temple. That was, that was supposedly the concern. Here, with the, when they went nuts because he said God had call, called him and sent him to the Gentiles. Well, they've forgotten all about that here. As soon as Paul says something, Pharisees versus Sadducees, they lose sight of what really concerns them. And verse nine says, a great clamor arose among them. Some of the Pharisees basically just declared Paul not guilty. Did you pick up on, we don't see anything wrong with this guy. Not because they've heard additional testimony. Not because they've examined any evidence, because they realize, yeah, he's our guy. Our guy must be innocent. Of course, the other guys are saying, hey, if he's your guy, he's all the more guilty as far as we're concerned. But there's great clamor arose. They descend into this tribal conflict and the dissension, it says, became violent. These are the, these are the rulers of the people of God. And the, and the dissension among them becomes violent. I guess maybe I've heard of church business meetings where it actually became violent, but I've never been in one. Uh, and even the ones I've heard of were shameful, right? They bring a reproach on the name of God. I mean, it is so incongruous with people who name the name of God, but that's how tribalistic they were, that the dissension becomes even violent. And, and, and that leads in turn to... Uh, a belief and a practice 
that we see beginning in verse 12, and that is a belief that the end justifies the means. We're talking about, again, the, the cultural environment that breeds political sleaziness, okay? A mob mentality, tribalism, and then the, the belief that the end justifies the means. Look in verse 12, it says, when it was day, the, the Jews made a plot and bound themselves by an oath neither to eat nor drink till they had killed Paul. Once again, the honorable leaders of the people of God plotting to lie to the Roman authorities, to, 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 to make up a lie, to, to slither around in the shadows, lying in wait for Paul to show up so they can kill him. And they believe they're justified in doing that. So, so again, catch the, the crazy irony of that, that here these, these men swear an oath before God to defend the honor of God by egregiously violating the law of God. That makes perfect sense, doesn't it? They, they go and, and, and tell the chief priests and elders about it. I mean, they think this is not only okay, but an honorable thing for them to do, that the end justifies the means. And see, the, 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 the problem is when we become so, so divided, when the dissension becomes so great that the other a party, the, the opposing group, is evil in our sight, then, then whatever it takes to suppress that evil is is justified in our minds. You see, this is, this is the, the trap we can fall into. That whatever, whatever it takes to win the next victory politically, to sort of hold back the opposing side, is justified. The end justifies the means. And that's exactly what, uh, how they're acting here in uh, Acts chapter 23. It's an environment that just breeds this kind of sleaze. And yet, the second observation, as I said, is that God has a plan that is certain to prevail even in a sleazy political environment. The, the key verse, I think, not only for this chapter, but really probably the next four chapters, is verse 11 of chapter 23 because Jesus shows up again. It says, the following night, the Lord stood by him, that is Paul, and said, take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. So all of these, all these players are running around plotting and making plans or whatever and Jesus shows up and says, no, nah, that's not gonna happen. Uh, you're gonna go to Rome and testify before me there. Now Paul's the only one who knows it, right? Jesus just happens to reveal he's got a plan there. He says Paul must testify in Rome. It's certain that it's gonna happen and let's notice just a couple of things about that. First, that Jesus does not need human government in order to reign. Okay, He does not need to operate in a democracy or a constitutional republic. He doesn't require a political party to be on his side. He doesn't require a political majority. There, in fact, is nobody in this story on his side, except for Paul. But nobody in charge is on Jesus' side. He doesn't need that one bit. There is nobody uh, from whom Jesus needs advice and consent 
there is nobody who has veto power. He said it's going to be, and it's going to be. But the other thing we need to notice is what it is Jesus reveals his plan to be. That is testimony about him. He, his plan is for the gospel to be advanced to Rome. Now see, the way we would write the story as 21st century Americans is, is that God loved Paul so much, he just said, you know, we're not gonna let your oppressors have victory over you. We're gonna, I'm gonna liberate you just because I love you so much and set you free. But this is not a happily ever after story for Paul, okay? If you've read the rest of the book, you know this does not have a Hollywood ending. Paul is not gonna sail off into a Caribbean sunset on his 47-foot yacht you know, sipping a glass of Chardonnay with a girl by his side and bags of money stowed down below so he can spend the rest of his life island hopping, you know, around the Caribbean. He, ultimately, he won't even be set free. Uh, there are some scholars who believe Paul was released from this first imprisonment, imprisoned a second time, but what we know with confidence is that he remained a prisoner and he died a prisoner. He was saved here by the Romans from execution by the Jews only later to be executed by the very Romans who had saved him. That's how the story ends for Paul. It is not a happily ever after ending, but it is Christ's plan and it will prevail and it does prevail. Just as he told Paul when he called him from that Damascus road, he says, you are a chosen instrument of mine to take the gospel to the Gentiles, to the children of Israel, and to kings. And he will testify before the highest authorities of the Roman and government before all is said and done. So number three, I said uh, uh, first that there's a certain environment that breeds sleaze. Number two, that... God has a plan that will prevail in spite of that fact. Number three, and quickly, that God enlists participants to carry out his plan. In verses 16 and 17, we, we see there that uh, Paul's nephew learns about this plot against him, and he goes and tells Paul. And Paul calls the centurion and says, take this man to the tribune. You know, Paul doesn't say to his nephew, hey, no worries, God's got this. He's told me I'm going to go to Rome. Uh, I don't know how he's going to work this out, but there's no chance that plot's going to work. Again, this is another theme we see in the book of Acts, the statements of God's absolute sovereignty. And yet over and over again, human responsibility to act in concert with God's sovereignty. And here it is again. Paul knows, he knows he can take Jesus at his word because Jesus has said this sort of thing to him before. He knows he's going to come through and yet he takes action here in response to this word as does Paul's nephew. They're, they're participants with God in bringing his plan about. And so wrapping up here, what are a few points of application that we can make? Because uh, again, much could be said much could be said about the sleazy political environment that we occupy and that we witness in our day in 21st century America. Lots could be said about that that probably needn't be said, uh, does it? But what do we do in light of uh, those facts? Well, number one, 
participate. Participate in the political process. Um, we have a voice. We are, we are uh, graced with the privilege to live in a country where we do have a vote and a voice and we ought to exercise it so that the mind and the heart of believers is reflected in the way that we're governed. Participate in the political process. Number two, don't play into tribalism and the mob mentality. I tell you, it, it, is, it is just epidemic. Um, now it is the default mode for just about everybody to be triggered you know, to, to read or, uh, you know, read on Facebook or you see a billboard sign or whatever of something that's an opposing viewpoint and people just fall down screaming about it. You know, get up. <laughs> get, just pick yourself up. And I mean, especially for believers, don't, don't be sucked into that tribalism and mob mentality. Number three, don't talk and live as if the end justifies the means. Uh, I, this concerns me for um, believers and for conservatives in our day because we're in a place where we begin to see things uh, much the way I described before. That is, w w we see how far afield things might go in the other direction. And so whatever it takes to keep it from doing so is justified. Now, maybe we don't say that. Maybe we haven't gone all the way there, but we're certainly vulnerable to being led down that road. But if the church will not be the voice of moral clarity in our culture, there will be no voice of moral clarity in our culture. And we must retain the position to be that voice of moral clarity to any and every politician, Democrat, Republican, Libertarian, Independent, whatever they are, conservative, liberal, and whatever else you can be. We need to retain the position to be that voice of moral clarity, as I've said before, that we, that we have a prophetic voice that is preeminent over a political voice. Because if the church doesn't do it, nobody will. Number four, and maybe most of all, rest your confidence and hope in Christ alone. He reigns, it is certain, uh, he, his side is the right side to be on. And even when his plan prevails, that doesn't mean necessarily that it'll look the way that we think it ought to look. As for Paul, it's not always a happily ever after ending, but it is always good if we are uh, hitched to him and part of the plan and the mission that he's carrying out, a mission uh, which is to preach a gospel that primarily changes hearts, not laws. And if we ever get to the point where we require laws exclusively uh, to maintain righteousness in our land, well, we will certainly lose the freedom we've known because it will, uh, it will require um, external restraint uh, all the time if there are not hearts of people. If, if people live by, must live by compulsion rather than by conviction, uh, then, then freedom will go with it. There was a quote by a man named Robert Winthrop in the late 1800s, I believe. He said, men in a word must necessarily be controlled either by a power within them or a power without them, either by the word of God or the strong arm of man, either by the Bible 
or by the bayonet. And there is, there is only one body of people, and it is the body of Christ, the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, only one group of people that has a message that can change hearts of people to be led by the Word of God, uh, to be governed by the Bible rather than by the bayonet. And that's where our hope needs to rest, in the, in the authority and lordship of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Well, Father, we do thank you that we do know of that hope and we rest our hope in Christ and Christ alone. We pray, uh, Lord, that you would be gracious, that you would be gracious to our nation. Uh, Lord, that in spite of our own desire, our own tendency to go our own way, Lord, that you would not let us, that you would pour out your spirit on this land, that you would send revival and awakening, Lord, that you would radically change the lives of people by taking out an old heart and giving, giving them a new one. And Lord, would you continue to stir us, keep us in a place of discomfort as the people of God if we sit complacently keeping that word of hope a secret, well, Lord, move us and mobilize us to proclaim the good news of Jesus to a world that needs to hear it. All to your glory and the good of your people. In Jesus' name, amen. And it is, of course, for us who who know Jesus, it is knowing that hope and living that hope that brings us um, to the Lord's table. Um, this is, uh, as you know, perhaps, um, a, a sacrament we partake of that is, number one, a remembrance of his sacrificial death for us that we sang about, oh, the blood, the precious blood of Jesus. It's a remembrance of his death, a seal of the benefits of that sacrificial death to those who believe. And it is a bond of our communion with Jesus and with each other. As his body, we are joined to one another as we are joined to him. And all of that is expressed as we come to the Lord's table and partake of the body and blood of Jesus. We do open the table to all who are believers in the Lord Jesus. You don't have to be a member of Myrtle Grove, um, but we do ask that you're a member of the body of Christ and uh, that we examine ourselves and partake worthy, worthily of it. And we'll ask that you hold the elements and partake uh, so that we can partake them um, together at the end, okay? And so we're reminded that the Lord Jesus on the night he was betrayed took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same manner also, he took the cup after supper, saying, 
This this cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. I'll ask that our elders will come forward to distribute the elements, and as they do, let's pray and ask God's blessing. Well, Lord, we do, um, again, thank you for all, all that this represents, Lord, that we have received the benefits of the sacrifice that Jesus made on our behalf. And so we ask that you would consecrate this ordinary bread and juice for extraordinary uses today, that you would bless them uh, and cause them in some way that is mysterious to us, some way that we don't even understand, not only to be a remembrance of him, but in some real sense that we partake of Jesus together. Would you bless them to that end in Jesus' name? Amen.